I think theology is for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. <laughs> Hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? I know. Welcome, everybody. This is Michael Patton, and this is Theology Unplugged. This is a podcast that uh, some of you that are here have never heard of before, but those of you who are listening to us online, you may seem, see things a little bit differently today as we've got a special guest. Sam Storms is not with us. Tim is kind of with us. Hey, Tim. Hey. We're in the middle of the Credo House. Uh, usually we're back in our studio, but right now we are out in the middle. I'm sitting here looking at about 75, 80 people who are here to see our special guest, that was uh, so gracious to stop by just for a little bit and do a quick broadcast with us. Dinesh D'Souza, also joined by David Dunn of the Oklahoma Family Policy Council. Great to have you. Delighted to be here. Uh, Dinesh is the author of many books, um, and, and I've been becoming more and more familiar with you, especially since you have written this book, What's So Great About Christianity. This is the book that I hold in my hand. Many of you all have other books of his, but great book, especially in line with what we are doing as a ministry at Reclaiming the Mind, Theology Unplugged, Credo House Ministries, and uh, that's what we're going to discuss a little bit. But tonight you're talking at uh, OU, University of Oklahoma. You ever taught there, uh, talked there before? Uh, no, I haven't. It's my first time. All right. Well, thanks and, for coming uh, to Oklahoma. I believe the, um, the atheist Richard Dawkins spoke there, I believe, a year ago. He has. He's and, spoken uh, there a couple times. Or and was some people who were at that event just felt that his arguments just weren't, you know, weren't answered. You, there was no one invited to counter him. Hmm. And so that was the germ of this event, which has come to fruition about a year later. Well, so good. We, we've had... Uh, it's a delayed rebuttal. Is, he's come, been one more time before, yeah, Richard well, he, he was here in March of 2009, and the university had made a, a big deal of uh, Charles Darwin's, uh, the 200th anniversary of his birth. And that whole year of 2009, they heavily promoted Darwinism. And so there were a number of people, uh, of Christians in the Oklahoma community, that felt that... Uh, Dr. Dawkins needed to be answered by someone of the caliber of uh, Dinesh D'Souza. And so that's how this event has come about. We've been working with an ad hoc committee uh, made up of uh, several denominational uh, components as well as just uh, people in the public square in Oklahoma and some private individuals to make this come about. So we're delighted that Dinesh will be there to do really two things. We're hoping that he will present... A, uh, a rational, rational, reasonable defense of Orthodox Christianity in a university setting, and then secondly, that he will also uh, challenge the what's called the new atheism, which is really probably just the old atheism, but uh, they call it the new atheism, and uh, there's really kind of a hostile environment, uh, much more hostile on the university campus from what uh, many of the people in the audience may have experienced during their days at university. So... Uh, that's what we're hoping Dinesh will be able to do uh, this evening. So very secular environment there at OU. Okay, good. Um, uh, appreciate you bringing them here. Really do. That's uh, great thinking for us. Uh, appreciate the Oklahoma Family Policy Council putting this all together. Uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about this. I, you've been in a lot of debates, haven't you? Well, I, I started out debating political topics. Most of my career has been secular I think well, my first one of my early books was called The End of Racism, and it looked at um, 
uh, why non-white immigrants in America have done pretty well, uh, why some of the indigenous minority groups have been here a long time haven't done as well. So it was a controversial book, and as a consequence, I started debating people like Jesse Jackson <laughs> on the campus. Now, was that your first debate? Uh, not my first one, but it was one of my early debates. I did a big debate with him at Stanford. And... Uh, so how did all that begin? Did somebody call you up and say, hey, we want you to debate so-and-so. What goes through your mind at that point? Well, this was in the 1990s. There was a big affirmative action referendum in California. My room was called Prop 209. It was outlawing racial preferences throughout the state. Mm. And it was on the ballot. And Jackson was there fighting for it. I mean, fighting to overturn the proposed referendum. And, um, and, and so I just moved to California. And uh, so the students at Stanford decided to put that together. And it was, it was a very stormy and lively event. And, but it, it got me a little experienced in debating. Uh, and then uh, a few years ago, I was watching television, and I saw Christopher Hitchens, whom I knew from Washington, uh, from political days, um, debating a pastor on Christianity. And it looked like a very unfair fight because a typical pastor is not trained or is not used to taking on a kind of a spear chucker like Hitchens. Mm. Uh, and so Hitchens was deriding the guy and ridiculing him and so on. And, um, and so I thought, you know, this is, this is not how this debate should happen. Uh, if, if, uh, that gave me the idea of maybe thinking about jumping into the arena and tackling some of these guys by debating them on their own terms. Well, you know, and that's exactly what I said whenever we were talking about it earlier as a staff here at Reclaiming the Mind. I said, I said, Dinesh is different whenever he talks to these people as, say, you know, William Lane Craig debating Christopher Hitchings because he really meets them where they're at and takes them on, uh, on their own terms. Well, it seems like, for interesting reasons, most of the Christian apologists are in the Christian uh, culture. They speak at the pastor's conference and the youth conference. And, um, and I think also in debating the atheists, they do, you could call it a job of translation. So if, if an issue like gay rights comes up, they'll, they'll think in terms of the Bible, and then they'll say, okay, well, how, how do I present this in a secular way? And this is a weird case for my own background, which is secular has, in a strange way, equipped me to, to I think, engage these debates more easily because I think in the same way that the atheists do yeah. uh, in terms of history and philosophy. And, and so I'm able to, I don't have to do that translation. I just engage the argument directly. At any time, if you guys here at the Credo House have a short question, please feel free to raise your hand and we'll get to that. Uh, the New Atheism. This is your book, What's so great about Christianity is response to the new atheism. Tell me about the new atheism. What's, what's new and why is it that you are spending so much of your time, your valuable time engaging with these guys? Well, the, um, the great atheists, I think, are, lived 100 years ago or 150 years ago. Um, I think atheism only became a real movement in the 19th century. You might have had some atheists before that, but even people like Hume, who were, I think were atheists, didn't call themselves that. Um, but in the 19th century, beginning with the German philosopher Schopenhauer, and then later Nietzsche, Heidegger, Bertrand Russell, Sigmund Freud, Karl Marx, this is the great atheism of the late 19th century and the early 20th century. Later Camus, um, Jean-Paul Sartre. So the new atheists, I think, are the Lilliputian frontmen for the old atheists. But they are doing something very different, and that is they are popularizing atheism. The, the old atheists, with the exception of Marx, who had a massive 
worldwide influence. The old atheists were influential only in small intellectual precincts. They influenced fellow philosophers, but they had no mass appeal. Uh, even a generation ago, when I first came to America in the late 1970s, you know, you think of people like Madeleine Murray O'Hare or some kind of a rumpled ACLU guy. This was atheism. Um, but the new atheists, you know, they're um, much more suave, they're academically sophisticated, they're media savvy, uh, they know how to organize not only articles in the Wall Street Journal, but signs on buses. When the Pope was in Britain, they were out in force, arrest this man. So they're, they're more, more belligerent, they're more sophisticated, uh, and they have a much greater appeal to young people. So mm. they have, I would say, in America now, made atheism a viable option for young people in a way it wasn't even a generation ago. Is there any of their arguments in particular? You may say that none of them are different necessarily, but is there anything that is coming across to this generation, this postmodern world that we're living in, as more um, effective, if you will, and, and causing... Well, let me, let me just stop there. Is more effective? Yeah, I, I do, I, you know... I did not mean to suggest that uh, the new atheists don't have a different thrust. They do. In fact, I think uh, Christian apologetics needs to be different in every generation. If you think of C.S. Lewis, who's kind of my hero, uh, Lewis was writing in the aftermath of World War II, addressing questions that came out of the war. Uh, why would a just God allow a holocaust? And Lewis writes the problem of pain. So, uh, but today... Um, the world is different. The arguments are, come out of evolution, and they come out of Stephen Hawking's new book about the laws of physics, multiple universes, 9-11, um, the, uh, the explosion of Islamic radicalism leading to equations between Islam and Christianity. So the old apologetics is dated. I mean, if, you, if I think of the argument made famous by Josh McDowell, you know, essentially borrowed from C.S. Lewis. Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. If you try that today at the University of Colorado in Boulder, half the audience will say liar and lunatic. Mm. End of discussion. Um, so in the 1970s, people said, well, Jesus is a great prophet. We agree to that. And if someone agrees to that, then you can say, well, but he did claim to be Lord, and so you know, he probably wasn't lying, and he certainly didn't give any signs of being nuts. Mm. So you've got to take seriously his claim that he was, in fact, the Messiah. Uh, but the moral consensus that upheld that argument 25 years ago has fractured. Mm. And so that argument carries no weight today. I certainly don't even go, go near it. Um, I, I want to... Uh, so I know this is a short broadcast, but I do want to get into something that I love that you do. And you may not, you may not have particularized this the way that I think you did, but you, you argue something called the O.J. argument with regards to Stephen Hawking's and many who are saying there's a multiple universe out there there's, uh, that, that can explain in atheism how it is that the world came into existence without a creator. Maybe there's another universe out there that doesn't follow by the laws of our universe. That's kind of a common thing. Maybe there's infinite amount of universes that don't follow by the laws. Yes, in our laws, an effect has a cause, but maybe in that universe it doesn't. And you, you talk about the O.J. argument. Do you remember saying the O.J. argument? O.J. Simpson. Oh, oh, I, I really don't, and I, I actually don't even know where it's going, so I, I won't go there. <laughs> uh, it, it was, it but it was, sounds like it made an impact on you. That was the so crowning that. jewel of this theology of the world. <laughs> uh, uh, is atheism on the rise? Um, 
That's a hard question. Worldwide, I would say no. Um, actually, Christianity is doing very well worldwide. In fact, uh, many people think Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world, but it's, it's not. Christianity is. Islam is growing mainly by, you might say, multiplication, but Christianity is growing by conversion. So the Muslims have a very, they have, do not have the ability to convert that they used to. Uh, so they're now basically multiplying by having bigger families. Uh, but Christianity is spreading very well in Asia and Africa and South America. And um, so worldwide, you know, I think, um, I think there's a resurgence of religion and specifically Christianity. But in the West, uh, it seems that Christianity has become very decayed in Europe. Uh, and in America, certainly most, I do, uh, live in secular neighborhoods so that it seems like Christianity is beaten down. The students I run into in secular campuses feel besieged. Um, uh, it's, you know, Christianity in that sense is unfashionable. There's a built-in secularism in intellectual life. And uh, so I think one of the benefits of these debates, and, you know, you mentioned the multiple universes and so on, is is that is a logical possibility. Whenever you have a rare event, it could, it could be rare because somebody designed it that way, or it could be rare because there are a lot of events, and each one is going to have a freakish character. Just like if we were to have, if we were to roll a roulette wheel, uh, you'll get a rare number. And um, if, it's, if it's a rare number out of a thousand outcomes, you can say, incredible, this was only a chance of one in a million, but I got it. But of course, some number had to come up. So you're going to get a rare number, no matter what it is. Um, so the multiple universes is, attempt, is an attempt to um, say that the special features of our universe are rare, but not statistically Because they unexpected. had to come about. Because sometime. it had to come about in, in some scenario. Mm. And then in, in an infinity of tries, pretty much every outcome, however unlikely, is going to be realized somewhere. Mm. Uh, we're talking with Dinesh D'Souza. I've got his book in my hand, What's So Great About Christianity. Lots of other books that you guys have brought. Lots of the, those of you who are listening to this broadcast have read as well. Um, if anybody here has any questions, please feel free. we got one right back here. What's your name? Brian. Hey, Brian. Let me repeat that real quick for our audience online. Uh, or on the podcast. He, he's asking if, um, uh, since most Christians, it seems, grow up with this idea that the earth has to be young and evolution could not be the case, and you mention in your book that Christianity is compatible even if evolution were true, um, how is it that we are to uh, communicate that more effectively? The, you know, I think what happened with the evolution debate is that there are two strands in Darwin and they became conflated. Darwin, well, Darwin was a lukewarm Christian, an Anglican. In fact, at one time, he was thinking of becoming a clergyman. Uh, why? Well, actually, not because he was that interested in theology. He was not, not a natural for the credo house here, but uh, he thought that clergymen don't do much. Uh, they work one day a week, and they get ni- a nice parsonage to live in. So he thought he could do science on the side. Um, and so he was considering this ecclesiastical career, um, he, um, his discovery of evolution was actually quite remarkable and, and I think in a way very enchanting. I mean, he was basically, he was traveling islands in South America and he, was, he noticed that you have uh, exotic species that he hadn't seen anywhere and they differed a little bit from island to island. Um, and um, different types of finches, different types of tortoises. 
And basically what Darwin asked was a very simple question. Did God make every creature individually on each island? Why would he go to the trouble of making them separately when they seem to differ in minor features like the length of their beak and so on? Or were all these different creatures part of an original tortoise that migrated to these islands and under different environmental conditions were modified? So, you know, this is, was a, kind of an ingenious um, speculation by Darwin um, and led ultimately to his sort of theory of evolution. Now, the interesting thing about Darwin is separately from that, in his life, he became a rabid, I would say an atheist, although he called himself an agnostic. Now, why did he become an atheist? Not because of evolution. It had a lot to do with two other things. In fact, it had a lot to do with something that I'm writing about now, which is the issue of theodicy. Why does God permit suffering? Darwin's young daughter, age 10, became degeneratively sick and died, uh, and that was a huge blow to his faith. And then separately from that, Darwin noticed that a lot of his relatives, including his grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, a lot of the circles they moved in were skeptics. And it suddenly hit Darwin one day that all these people, he says, if, if Christianity is true, all these people are going to hell. And Darwin said, but these are great people. These are the people who are part of my family, and, uh, and so and these, are, these are good, decent people. And I just cannot endure a religion that dispatches them all to eternal torment. So my point is, this was Darwin's main reason for defecting from Christianity. So, what, But when he did that, in later life, he began to, um, you can say, inject atheism into evolution. He began to say, we can't let what he called a divine foot in the door. We can't let anything appear to be designed. Um, now, none of this is in evolution, but Darwin started it, and people like Dawkins are, you, they're, they're sort of atheistic evolutionists. Um, so ironically, atheistic evolution is upheld by two camps, the radical atheists and, in some senses, the creationists. And remember, I'm a creationist in the sense that I believe there's a creator. I also believe in intelligent design and that I believe there's a designer of the universe. Um, but I don't think that either of that is incompatible with accepting a lot of evolution as a biological description of what happened. I mean, if you look at Genesis 1, it tells you God made life, God made the universe, God made man, but it doesn't say how. Yeah, we, we've talked a lot about that at the ministry here as well. It's, it's something that I don't happen to be an evolutionist, but I know a lot of really good Christians who are, and I think it's an exposure to the, to the main essentials. Uh, the gospel is not how many days you believe God created the earth in, but what do you do with Jesus Christ? That's the first and most essential. Uh, question, right back here. One more, and then we're done, I think. Uh, she said that uh, Christianity seems to be in decline. Do you see hope for revival for our country? Well, let me say two things about it. One is I think that I would like to see and be part of a, um, a kind of intellectual counterattack um, by Christians in public society. Um, one reason I took the presidency of the King's College in New York City is because I feel like there are good Christian schools out there, there are good Christian um, there are churches and megachurches and so on, but there isn't a college or university right now that is having a big impact on America, in other words, on secular society. 
uh, Christian colleges, for the most part, are a little bit of a shelter from society. They protect your child by shielding them from the toxic influences out there. But the big downside of that is that when you shield a kid, you're also cutting them off from the major political and economic and um, cultural centers. So the reason the King's College is in the Empire State Building in New York City is the idea is, listen, why, you know, we want our graduates to go to Goldman Sachs and Merrill Lynch and Capitol Hill and CBS News and Hollywood and Mumbai and Shanghai. So and, and it's a Christianity very much ready to take on the world. Um, we, we sort of see Manhattan as our mission field, so to speak, uh, not Nigeria or India. Um, so that's one thought about it. I, I think the other is that, um, you know, I think... Uh, Christians sometimes are, are, are too conciliatory in giving up um, uh, the public square to, the, to, our, to our opposition. I mean, think about it. We're living in a society where the majority of people uh, are Christian. Some are nominally Christian, but nevertheless. So purely secular people are a tiny minority, and yet they have scammed the whole society into this idea that, look, we take the public square, which is the entire democratic space of our society, and we coordinate it off, then we identify all the religious opinions in it, and we throw them out uh, and, 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 and consign them to the private sphere. Uh, and in doing this, we're being magnificently fair to everybody. Um, so this, on the face of it, is nuts. I mean, you think believer and unbeliever alike should share the public square, and there should be some sort of a... Um, a, 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 a right for both groups to express views uh, in that area, but no. Um, and our, our, you know, our jurisprudence has gone along with that. Uh, so how have we gotten to this absurd pass? Uh, it's really because of the collapse of Christian intellectual arguments, judicial arguments, activism. So I'd like to see a combative revival of all that. Um, and essentially by... by um, uh, I, I think we've surrendered way too much territory, and it's about time to take some of it back. Well, we're certainly glad that you uh, accepted that first debate and that you continue to and put yourself out there in the public square, both through your publications and through the engagements that you're having, such as the one tonight at University of Oklahoma. Thank you very much for setting that example. We all appreciate it here. That's why they're all here to see you. Um, and, and we appreciate you coming by here. David, thank you very much for having him. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. And we're delighted Denise is here. Good. Pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening and God bless.